Welcome to the New York Institute for the Humanities podcast. I'm Robert Boynton. In this episode from the Institute's vault, we have an excerpt from a two-day symposium, Hannah Arendt Right Now, which explored the philosopher's impact on the 21st century. The 2006 event was held on the 100th anniversary of Arendt's birth. In this session, Conan Mikia talks about Arendt's influence on his thought with Jonathan Schell. Conan Mikia was born in Baghdad and educated at MIT. His book, Republic of Fear, The Politics of Modern Iraq, was published in 1989. Mikia was a proponent of the 2003 invasion of Iraq. Schell, who died in 2014, was a writer for The New Yorker and The Nation magazines. His 1967 book, The Village of Ben Sook, chronicled the devastation of a South Vietnamese village by American forces. Well, thank you very much, Ren, and hello, Jonathan. Sorry, I can't see you both. I have such a personal relation to Hannah Arendt. She meant so much to me, while never ever having met her in my life, of course, but she meant so much to me intellectually. She was there in the shape of her books at a very transforming moment and a very important moment in my life, basically what I am today, all sorts of different ways, politically and intellectually, truly has its origin in the effect that her work had on me. I stumbled upon Arendt with absolutely no background or introduction, having not read a thing about her even or heard about her in, of all places, the Swiss Cottage Library in the Swiss Cottage District of London. The year was 1981. The Middle East was, as usual, you might say, falling apart. Uh, The Iranian Islamic Revolution had just happened. Lebanon was in the midst of sectarian civil war. And Iraq and Iran had just begun, or at the initiation of Iraq, a massive war that was to last eight years. And it's probably one of the most destructive wars of that part of the world, which, of course, has seen many, many wars. This was the context in which I was in, and add to that that Strange stories were beginning to come out of Iraq through friends and family, basically, and colleagues. Stories, uh, really horrible, terrible, remarkable things that I could not situate in my mind theoretically. I didn't have a place for them analytically. I didn't know where they belonged. They seemed sort of beyond the pale and coming out of some territory that I simply didn't understand. I had spent the previous 10, 12 years immersed, as much of my generation had post-67, in what you might call Arab-Israeli politics. The 1967 war had been absolutely decisive on me, and I attached myself to the rising banner of the Palestinian movements, various movements, and in particular the Marxist ones. And I very quickly developed a Marxist view of the world, heavily steeped in everything Marx wrote, Lenin and Trotsky also. And it was precisely that background that all of a sudden had me adrift against the backdrop of as I said, sectarian civil war in Lebanon, Islamic revolution. I mean, what did that mean in Marxist categories coming out of Iran? And then my own country of origin at war with this other country that had just had a genuine revolution after all. And being a Marxist and being revolutionaries, as so many young men of my generation were, revolutions were always good things. So I came to Arendt at a time when you might say the old tools of thinking about politics were, in my own mind, no longer working. They weren't delivering the goods. Certainly, they were not providing me with satisfactory answers. But I had none, no other. I had, I had absolutely no other way of thinking about these grand big issues that were tearing the Middle East apart. I had to shamefully, uh, you know, rather shameful thing to have to say, but admit that I stumbled upon her 
first book, The Origins of Totalitarianism, in a condition of truly awful ignorance about any kind of thinking about politics that was not Marxist or nationalist or socialist in one form or another, or various mixtures of those three categories. I had, for instance, not read John Stuart Mill or Montesquieu or uh, Montaigne or Erasmus. I had no foundation in the classics of Plato, Aristotle, and so on. And other than, of course, what I had gleaned secondhand through various Marxist writers. So um, uh, this kind of it's in that woeful state of general political education that you suddenly come across somebody like Arendt, who, who takes the entire corpus of European political thought Greek and ancient Greek political thought just totally for granted in everything she writes. And I had, as I said, real political dilemmas, which were not resolved and which I, I needed to make sense of. One I've just already referred to is that, of course, most of my Marxist friends and colleagues were busy taking positions, for instance, in the Lebanese Civil War. I remember there was kind of language at work in which you tried to discern with great difficulty, of course, the progressive side and the sectarian civil war that was going on versus the reactionary side. And, of course, progressives and reactionaries were constantly interchangeable with one another, and they were all uniformly doing pretty horrible and ugly things to one another. And the words seemed like a real stretch of the imagination because progressive in the Marxist terminology was some sort of long, big historical process which would emerge in a better society, however awful or however many murders along the line that the so-called progressive side might be perpetrating. And this was beginning to become very difficult for me to handle. And similarly, you know, this idea that there was a revolution and, you know, Marxists supported revolutions. We were revolutionaries, after all, going on in Iran. And yet, how could you, when every instinct in my body at the same time was crying out that this was no a revolution of the working class with a progressive agenda in mind, that this was going to come to no good at all. And this was actually, in some very genuine sense, an Islamic revolution. How can you combine those two words, Islam and revolution? And how could a revolution be a backward thing? Well, it was Arendt who uh, made it possible. And by the way, Arendt was a great supporter of uh, what she called insurrectionary or revolutionary moments, moments of true political action when people came out on the street. But it was precisely her way of thinking that gave me a way of understanding how a revolution could be a good thing or it could be a very bad thing. All of a sudden, reading her, I think, and this is, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of distilling the essence of what I got out of her. I will get more concrete a little bit later on. But in a very fundamental way, it turns out Nothing about her that's important or that's lasting is about prescriptions in politics, things that are always one way or another, always right or wrong, the working class, the ruling class, so on and so forth. Above all, she's about how to think about these issues, constantly seeing them in their peculiar way of metamorphosing from one thing to another. And that was the true revelation, the true discovery in Arendt. But to get back to those stories that were coming out of Iraq, which I mentioned earlier, and, and let me take sort of one dimension of them again, issue of violence. Now, violence for a Marxist is usually always a means to an end. So revolutions, for instance, engage in violence, but that's generally okay because in the, sort of a, a bright dawn is over the horizon and all of that is going to be something in the past in due course. But the remarkable thing about what she does in, for instance, a book like 
the origins of totalitarianism. She tells you what happens when violence, which, true, begins as a means to an end, suddenly becomes the end of a certain kind of politics in and of itself. This was a true revelation for a person like me. And she then sets about to dissect that system of government, totalitarianism, in which violence has become ubiquitous, has, so to speak, become the be-all and end-all of politics, in which, uh, to put it crudely, she would probably never say this, torture has become the principle rather than the sort of thing that happens in the back corners of punishment. And as I read the details of how Germany and Soviet Union got there, not so much as a historical story, because she's not really a historian, but as she constructs the categories that organizations like the Nazi Party and the Communist Party constructed in those societies, the front organizations, for instance, they put up the networks of informers, the circles upon circles upon circles of informing and of agencies that, that were spying on other agencies and so on. I began to find the tools of the apparatus for understanding or for the first time for beginning to think about, and I, again, I repeat, it's not about prescriptions, what was going on in Iraq at that time. I don't think Hannah Arendt has ever thought about the Middle East or written a word about the Arab world. And yet, reading about Germany in the 1930s and 40s, about the Soviet Union in the 40s and 50s, it was like I was suddenly understanding those inchoate stories that I had been collecting and not knowing what to do with, which I had tried in the early versions of the book I was trying to write about all of this using the categories of social analysis, class struggle, and so on, and getting nowhere. Because what I was really interested in was that violence. And yet I had all this language, I had all this obligatory series of things I had to do as a proper Marxist, study the social structure, the nature of the social classes, and try to figure out where the violence was coming on from within those categories that Marx had constructed about England way back in the 19th century. And reading her increasingly and working on the problem of going backwards and forwards between the origins of totalitarianism, the stories coming out of Iraq, I all of a sudden realized that those old structures were just not working. I started to gradually change the whole outline of what became, of the book that became Republic of Fear and was published eventually in 1989. Now this, I'm talking about all of this thinking and this sort of engagement with Arendt is going on in 82, 83, 84 period. That's at least how I first encountered her. And ever since, she has been and remains a seminal force on how I think about politics. Well, first I want to say it's a pleasure uh, and an honor to meet you, if only over the telephone. I suppose what I'm fascinated and, and in a way astonished to learn that her reflections, which after all, as you say, did grow out of a Western experience almost exclusively if we count the Soviet Union as West. Uh, equally, she had almost as little to say about Asia. She was a daughter of the West to an, exactly. a, an astonishing degree. So it's, it's absolutely fascinating to me, and I am not in any way expert on the Middle East, I'm sorry to say, uh, that the illumination was so strong. I wondered if you, if you could elaborate a little bit on it, what that illumination was, and also, were there limitations on it? In other words, were there elements that sort of stood out as not being explained or not being touched upon in the aftermath of this, what you call the revelation? Let me start with the first part, which is how the work actually shed light on what was going on in Iraq. You see, I mentioned stories of violence coming out of the country. That in and of itself is not enough. But also, we had had a series of campaigns during the late 1960s, early 1970s, when the Ba'ath Party, which came in as a minority party, and the central question to understand about Iraq during the 1970s and early 80s 
was how a party that was so despised by the late 1960s when it came to power through a coup d'etat, after all, actually became a mass party. It came to power with about a thousand members at most, and it ended up with hundreds of thousands of members by the early 1980s. How did that happen? And it did not come to power through a revolution. It came to power through an old-fashioned coup d'etat. But it set about in a ruthlessly sort of engineering a transformation of the body politic in Iraq in such a way as to enable it to stay in power. And it was that process of political engineering by the Ba'ath Party that are so Arentian, if you like, in their nature. To begin with, there is actually a connection. For instance, one of the first things the Ba'ath Party do in 1969-1970, at that time Saddam Hussein was vice president, and the president was the army officer who had engineered the coup, whom he later removed in 1979. He, he purged. The first thing they did was to reorganize, of course, the security services. And who did they rely upon to do that? The East German secret police. So a completely new relationship between Iraq and East Germany, totally focused on security issues and reorganizing and restructuring the Muhabarat, the party intelligence system. This is the meta-intelligence organ of the Ba'ath Party. It is the intelligence body that oversees the state security, the military intelligence, and everybody else. That process was done through very close working relationships with the Fazis. They begin, for instance, by purging top army officers. Then they keep purging slowly. Then they insert junior officers and soldiers as informers who are party members and Muhabarat members into the army. Very soon, within a handful of years, you're beginning to have an army which was the force, the political force of Iraq all through the 1960s, turning into a creature of the party rather than something that was independent, that had an esprit de corps of its own, and could do something like engineering coup. At the same time, they created all sorts of front organizations, trade unions, or took them over, student associations, lawyers' unions, etc., and began to exclude others from being in them. The way they would work the exclusion, since they were unpopular at the start, was to make alliances with one part, for instance, the Communist Party, crush the Kurds. Once they had decisively crushed the Kurds, because of the various carrots they had given to the communists, they would turn against the communists. And this process went on from 1968 to 1977, until by about mid-1970, there was no longer an organized opposition of any weight left in Iraq. The funny thing that then happens is you would think that the excuse for the violence would now have having gone, since real opposition to the regime was non-existent virtually, the Kurds had been crushed out of 1974-75 war against them, and the communists were booted out, kicked out, after they had been brought into the government, and ruthlessly picked up bodies cropping up all up in the Tigris and so on and so forth. And they were now wiped out of the force and running away to Syria and other countries as exiles. You would think at this point the violence would diminish because the so-called reasons for it had gone. But the very opposite happened. It escalates. All of a sudden, the means of violence, to get back to that uh, old conundrum, have become an end in themselves. They grow exponentially. If you look at the numbers of security personnel, for instance, the number of institutionally armed men in Iraq between, say, the year 1968 and 1980, when they launched the war against Iran, you notice that in 1968, the Ba'ath inherits a pretty normal third world country with the kind of normal relationship between institutionally armed men and Versus the population, if you divide the number, total number of people who paid salaries to repress or uh, organize or watch over 
the civilians, divide them over the total civilian population, you end up with a ratio that's pretty similar in a number of countries of that kind, Iran, for instance, under the Shah. I made these comparisons in Republic of Fear, but after 1975, the numbers go through the roof, and all of a sudden, they have orders of magnitude more institutionally armed men employed through now all sorts of overlapping security agencies, army, national guards, militias of various kinds, official militias that are growing and growing and growing. Of course, all of this is fueled by an oil economy that has gone through the roof post-1973 oil price rises. And you begin to ask, well, what's it for? How does it work? And, the first, and you also ask a question, which is another puzzling question that Aaron deals with. Why is this system stable? One would assume that this is a deeply illegitimate party it came in as a minority through a military coup, was very unpopular to start off with, but somehow it acquired legitimacy. How does illegitimacy translate into legitimacy, politically speaking, in this particular way? And can we say that the state that is emerging has in some sense truly become legitimate? And the answer to that Arendt has, again, for a number of her books, is through the complicity that the Ba'ath Party succeeded in stilling. Normally, legitimacy arises through consent. You participate in bringing in a government to power through votes for elections or whatever it may be. Hitler, after all, came to power that way, but not in Iraq. In Iraq, legitimacy was purchased through complicity. And complicity was done by involving people in the service, in the, for instance, the intelligence organization, having files being generated, paperwork files, which made more and more people aware that they had done things, for instance, in order to go and study abroad, you had to send in a report about one of your colleagues, or in order to get a, a better job, you had to inform on your neighbors. And as this information collects, this paperwork collects in the agencies, the security services, you yourself are now bound up with the system that did them. If at first you wrote some harmless report, probably full of untruth anyway, you tried very hard not to blame anybody, Nonetheless, there now existed a report with your name attached to it in the security services, and you were part of the system. This debate turned into a fine art. And I think, at the end of the day, Arendt allows us to understand why such systems are, in their own way, perfectly stable. The only sense in which they're not stable is because of a dynamic that she herself addresses in The Origins of Totalitarianism. Because the means of violence are growing so fast, they have to find something to do. More often than not, they erupt into war against neighboring countries, which, of course, is exactly what happened in Iraq. At the point at which the security services, the army, are now growing and growing and growing astronomically by now, through the 1970s. It's in, in 1979, Saddam purges the then president, announces himself a president, or organizes a remarkable show trial, again, very similar to what Stalin had done in the 1930s. And the very first thing he does is take this accumulated means of violence that he now no longer knows what to do with, in a sense, and sends it out. He goes bursting out of its borders, so to speak, in an attack on Iran at that time with a bid for regional leadership in the Middle East. So that, perhaps the most destabilizing element of the Ba'ath system in Iraq, was not what happened internally, because there they succeeded. It was the wars that they engaged in from 1980 onwards, and then afterwards the, the war against Kuwait and so on. That, I could only understand how such a system lasted and, and how, it dif how it was different from a typical run-of-the-mill third-world dictatorship. And that's, I think, the crucial thing. Third-world dictatorship, you have an army, somebody like 
say, General Gaultieri in Argentina. He decides the Falklands, he's going to take it, and that perhaps uh, he'll get away with it. He takes the risk, gambles, loses. Society, Argentinian society, is still there, solid and intact. It isn't affected. As soon as he fails, he boots out General Gaultieri and changes the system of government, and more or less continues. Things go on from there. In Iraq, society has been atomized. Society has been deeply, deeply compromised through this process I described earlier of informing and so on. That is a process that was never done before the modern period, and that I think Arendt was the first person to dissect in the Argent. Kanan? Yeah. I think that, that actually is a good place to begin to move you in the direction of more contemporary things, so that you have this stable regime with this kind of in, the instability of that is going around invading places and not winning, and, and in fact losing dramatically in Kuwait, for example. But it's still stable, it's still there. And the question is how do you get rid of it? And this leads us to more contemporary politics, mm-hmm. and, and specifically in your case, I, you know, I, I, granted that there's a whole history between, the, uh, between 1980 and, and 2003 or so, but at a certain point, you become convinced that the only way to get rid of it is going to be through an outside pressure, and specifically an American invasion. You were one of the people who, or a, an outside invasion. Right. Can you talk about your thinking precisely in Arendtian terms? One way of putting it is, what do you think Arendt would have been thinking, and, or phrased differently, how do you yourself see the position of having supported the war and then your feelings about things today in Arendtian terms? Right. That's also that's a really important question. The first thing I want to say is a backdrop to that. I don't know what Hannah Arendt's position might have been, for instance, on the war in Iraq, whether she would have been for it or against it. I don't think you can derive from her way of thinking a position one way or the other, because the position, the political position, are you for this war, for the removal of Saddam Hussein regime or not, depends on all sorts of other considerations, like the state of the country, like what the, the, the international community is going to be thinking about, all sorts of other considerations which go into whether or not that's a good idea to do. And those are local, particular, conjunctural calculations that anybody has to make. That having been said, let me now turn to myself and say, perhaps I was too Arantian in that I became so frustrated, as many Iraqi exiles were, and many Iraqis inside and outside the country were, deeply frustrated at this system whose violence was growing exponentially internally. And we were looking at things that were bizarre by even the not very nice standards of the Middle East. We were looking at grotesque forms of barbaric behavior, genocide of the Kurds, forms of punishment that were truly mind-bogglingly awful, and a kind of a, a constant growth and escalation in the cruelty of the relation of the state to its citizenry all through the eight years of the Iraq-Iran war and so on. And, and bodies just accumulating through wars at a remarkable rate. We were looking at all of this, and tearing our hair out, so to speak, wondering what could change this. It was quite clear to a person like myself that this would change would not come from the inside, given that kind of a system. And that became for me, I think, that that is also an Arendtian insight. Now, I may have been wrong. I'll get to that in a second. But the sense that it was hopeless, that it was desperate, that Iraq was not going to be able to change from within, simply because the state was just too gargantuan, completely unbound by any form of moral sort of limitation upon the kind of violence it would use. Take even the Shah of Iran, a very autocratic dictatorial regime with a very famous secret police and so on. The Shah could not order his army to mow down demonstrators in Tehran who were holding flowers in their hand and calling for the change of regime back in 1979. 
He simply couldn't do it, and the army wouldn't have shot. He didn't do it because the army also would not have shot at those citizens. In Iraq, we've had that same test over and over again, and always, it's not ended up the same way. The army has shot, and we, we haven't had those kinds of revolutions as a consequence. So part of the argument that is constructed in Republic of Fear, you end, Republic of Fear is a black book. It's a desperate book. It's not a book from which you can conclude that the outcome is going to be positive. I mean, after all, it ends while the Iraq-Iran war was still being fought. The Iraq-Iran war was raging. Things were as dark and black as could be. By the end of that book, you came out with a sense of foreboding and doom about the future. Let me, by the way, interrupt you for one second and, and ask Jonathan a question at this point. As another Arendtian thinker, there was no way it could be solved internally. And yet a lot of your thinking coming out of Arendt is that at the end of the day, that is how these things get solved. You know, um, the English commentator, British commentator on, uh, on American affairs at the turn of the century said that war is God's way of teaching Americans geography. And uh, I'm a little bit in that position here because so often the United States will attack a country and then, you know, go to Wikipedia and try to find out about that country. And then, and then we learn about Shiites and Sunnis and things that were never on our horizon as they were so much on your horizon. So even today, I have to say, hearing this history that you're telling us is a matter of war teaching me geography, so to speak. So I, I don't have the uh, ability to hazard a comment on the internal politics of Iraq. What to me has seemed, if I would generalize from uh, you know, the experience of American intervention and invasion, and in fact uh, going far beyond that really, to imperial intervention or invasion in, in modern times, what looms forth as this sort of key element to me is the will of the local people. What do they want? I began as a reporter in Vietnam. And by the way, the outcome of that war did not produce a government of a type that I would admire, a one-party dictatorship surviving to this day. Nevertheless, it became clear to me, and it's not an original point, that what the people there wanted to be was to be unified, and they were perfectly ready to accept the NLF and the North in that role. In other words, the political questions, and we hear this over and over again in terms of the Iraq war, is that the local politics turn out to be the decisive factor, not the guns of the invader, the intervener. So here, here would be the question, again, that I, I would put to you. You describe a situation, and it's, it certainly is a highly Arendtian one, I must say, especially when you comment that the violence actually increased once full control. I remember she, she speaks of that in the totalitarian mm -hmm. context, especially uh, the Stalinist. And I remember her explanation is that, you know, now that the human will has been subjugated, pure ideology can take over. So, exactly. the, force, so the forces of history can start to act, and then, then that's when whole classes of people are sent to their doom and so forth. But here's my basic question. Was there such a thing as an underlying disposition of the people of Iraq that could reveal itself once the totalitarian lid was lifted. Now, in the case of the Soviet Union and, and, and the, and the so-called satellite countries, as we used to call them, there was such a will, and we did see it emerge. We were speaking of the Solidarity Movement in Poland and so forth, and they sort of went to the closed door and got sort of liberal democracy off the rack and put that suit on, and they have it to this day. Because to me, uh, you know, not only explanation of what happened 
under Saddam, which you've been addressing, but also what's happened in the years since the invasion. And what will happen in the future is going to depend on the will of the Iraqi people is, or maybe I should say wills, and I have to ask the question, is there an Iraqi people, or is it, was it more like uh, Yugoslavia when it broke up and they just didn't consider themselves to be one people and went to war to claim one piece of territory or another? Jonathan, I am really almost totally in agreement with the point that you just made, but I'm going to complicate the issue a bit. I'm going to answer your question directly about a will uh, of the Iraqi people. Well, let me begin there, actually. During the peak of the dictatorship, when that violence, as Arendt would have said, has just completely dominant, taken over, the one thing that doesn't exist, because it doesn't have a way to exist, is some form of expression of that will, political will I'm talking about. What does exist, but it also doesn't have political expression, is absolute hatred of the system that's generating the violence. Everybody, in other words, is against the totalitarian system, but they don't yet have any system or have anything to put in its place. A comment I need to make here. Arendt herself made a very important series of distinctions. The pure kind of totalitarian state she talks about actually exists in very short periods of time. I mean, in the Soviet Union, for instance, she talks of two moments, one immediately after World War II during the repression and the doctor's trial and all that kind of thing, the height of the repression right after World War II and during the 30s and 40s. By the time of Khrushchev, the state that Arendt described in Origins of Totalitarianism was already coming apart, and certainly by the time of Brezhnev and much later on and so on. So the Soviet Union has some 30 or 40 years distance from the totalitarian state that Arendt described before Gorbachev and all the rest of it started to happen. Hitler, of course, was removed by way of an external war. So the analogy here with Iraq is present, and that's actually one of the reasons I, I used it at the time. But I want to get to a, another sort of strange paradox. Iraq, at the time of the 2003 war, was no longer an Arantian totalitarian state, because that had begun to be dismantled in 1991. A totalitarian state, I think it is accurate in strictly Arantian terms, to describe the vast state of Iraq as becoming totalitarian by about mid-1975 and lasting right the way through to the first Gulf War. But the first Gulf War does something very fundamental. It destroys the power of that state, its ability to project its power externally, certainly. It frees 20% of the country, which the Kurds now control, and they run an autonomous region by themselves. And there are huge no-go areas in the south. All of a sudden, that system of totalitarian control is starting to fall apart. On top of that, the whole world joined in putting sanctions on this already crippled body politic. And we end up with a situation that is most un-Arantian from 1991 to 2003. So what is going on during this period? Well, it's very interesting. The totalizing Saddam Hussein, who spoke of the unification of the Arab world, who led one war to occupy and actually did annex Kuwait, and then another war previously, that a war against Iran and so on and so forth. The person who was uncomfortable inside the boundaries of Iraq who had exactly what you described, that pure ideology taking over and leading to one insane war after another insane one that ultimately brought about his downfall. That same Saddam Hussein, who couched all of this, his pure ideology, so to speak, was pan-Arabism, now turned into, much like Milosevic before him, from a communist to a Serb nationalist, Saddam Hussein turned from an Arab nationalist to a Sunni sectarian rule, ruler, who uses sectarian divisions in Iraq from 1991 onwards to rule. 
And a totalitarian state, in the classic sense of the word, increasingly turns into a criminal state. It's run by, basically by mafias operating through, through the black market, uh, profiteering from the sanctions, and working through the sanctions, and so on and so forth. The country is disintegrating. The institutions that were model institutions, model repressive institutions, model educational institutions, model health institutions. I mean, he used to frog march everybody to education and literacy classes, and that's why UNESCO gave him the award in 1977 for country that had done the most to make literate the people of Iraq. He electrified every village. He ran roads through everywhere. That all went away. That kind of state suddenly turned into essentially a, a, a bunch of criminal thugs who were making profiteering large sums of money and getting it out of the country in any way possible. And that's the state that the United States toppled in 2003. Now, you could ask, was there an alternative? That's a different question. So the first thing I want to say is, although I have argued that there was a sense of despair as a consequence of the totalitarian state that Saddam set up, that a person like myself had. I also want to say that totalitarian state was no longer there in 2003, and a criminal state was removed by the United States military action in March and April. It turns out, paradoxically, that there was virtually no state at all, criminal, totalitarian, authoritarian, military, or whatever you want. There was no war to speak of in 2003. The war is happening now. No Iraqi soldier really fought the United States Army in 2003. That was a sham war. The war is happening now. Call it sectarian, call it civil. It's about identity. It's about what Iraq means. All of that, you're absolutely right. It's about what it means to be an Iraqi. If I were to sum up one way of looking at all of this, I'd say that we don't really have an example other than Iraq of a country that is subjected to violence for such a long period of time. It's subjected to a classic sort of Valentian-style totalitarian system for such a prolonged period of time, I mean, almost the length of a generation. And the consequences of that we're seeing now, the degree and the level of abuse, of atomization, what are now being called these identities that are being touted left, right, and center, are all false and concocted in the here and now, very, very recently, concocted post-91. That's not to say that there aren't Shiites and there aren't Kurds. And, and by the way, I exclude from these comments largely the Kurds who have had that continuity that the Arab part of Iraq has not had. The Kurds have, have had structures. They've had the same political parties. They've run their own affairs for 15 years. They have a clear sense of themselves, a sense of identity as Kurds. The rest of Iraq, however, has not been given the chance. The rest of Iraq, which stayed under Saddam's rule under Ba'athist rule right through till 2003, has not had that. And the chaos that we see is totally understandable from the atomization that only she wrote about in a way that is comprehensible. That kind of atomization, we now know the hard way, doesn't produce politics out of it that's anything other than violence, and that's a reduction of politics to the very most elemental sense of simple security, people trying to stay safe. We're in a kind of Hobbesian jungle in Iraq, and, and that was created. It was not there before, is my main point. What are the alternatives? Oh, that's a very hard one. Let me ask you a question before we get that. I remember in 1991, when I actually did a profile of you, you were of the opinion that the American army should have kept going to Baghdad. And the reason that certain people in the United States decided not to do that was they had a feeling this would happen, that there would be a vacuum, that we would be stuck with this incredible thing. And that's why it wasn't done at the time. In retrospect, were they right? I don't think they were right. I think Iraq in 1991, as I said, is not Iraq in 2003. It's just a totally different animal. 13 years of sanctions did 
unbelievable. I never thought of this until I went there, stayed almost three years there, and saw it with my own eyes. I went to back to Baghdad for the first time in 2000, April 2003. What it had done to the population is just something that was re- also another revelation, something new, something I learned after going back. I remember three or four days before the recent war, you were on Bill Moyers' show, and you had this very Arendtian view of, of what could happen, the <laughs> whole notion of being able to start something fresh, of having yeah. started something in the Middle East that was fresh, that you would be able, that precisely because there had been so much violence that the Iraq, Iraqi nation had come into existence in some sense in the wake of that, in the crucible of that violence and would want to be different and so forth. And Moyers at that point asked you, what percent chance do you think this is going to happen? And at that point, you had the lucidity and honesty to say 5%. Yes, it, it, it's totally remarkable that a person who did steep himself in Aaron before going to Iraq and while writing about Iraq, and therefore knew from Aaron, because of Aaron, because of the art books like The Origins of Totalitarianism, her essay on violence, and so on and so forth, just what the consequences of this kind of unleashing, this kind of rampant takeover by the means of violence of all spheres of life, what it would, should mean, theoretically, Nonetheless, as I, in that comment with the Bill Morris show, I refuse to accept, and still I'm happy, actually, that I refuse to accept, because the moment I accept a kind of certainty about it, the moment I say that it, it's finished, I mean, there's something, which I think Aaron would really understand, that something about being a human that is just extinguished in me. Aaron did something also very remarkable in the whole thinking about politics. She understood politics not as game, and certainly not as science. She despised the words, the use of the term even, but as almost like art, like, as you said, the making of something, a new beginning. The beauty of the human condition is that you can always have a new beginning. You can turn the page. If this scholarly side of you, the side of you that steeped in all the terrible things that this regime did and the consequences it must theoretically have on the population, says, well... 95% chance this is not going to work. But the other side says there is still a 5%. And being human is about clinging onto that 5%. I, I, so I have no regret, in spite of the fact that that's what I thought at the time. I, and things have gone wrong in all sorts of different ways. I still have no regret that I clung onto that 5%. Where are you now? Is there a 0.5% or, or <laughs> what do you do? Now I'm in a very glad place. <laughs> black, dark. I could at least write Republic of Fear during the darkest times of the Saddam era. I'm struggling with writing about what's going on at the moment. The words are not coming. There are times you can go back again to Arendt, and there are dark times, as she put it, and uh, we are going through the darkest of the dark, dark times. Let me play the crude journalist, if I may. We have endless discussion now. They leave all of that. Mm-hmm. Baker Commission, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, seems to me to be one fantasy after another. I agree. But the question that somehow goes unasked or not investigated as thoroughly as all this vaporing about what we should do and all of that is what will happen there. And I know I, uh, in a previous panel I, I refused to be a, uh, a prophet or a prognosticator of what will happen. But n- nevertheless, I mean, for instance, just to give a point of contrast, and it's one that's always in, in my mind, uh, which is the Vietnam War. I felt I knew, and I think everybody knew, for or against the war, perfectly well what would happen if the United States left. 
the North would come down and hook up with the NLF and take over and make one Vietnam, and that's what they did. And, and that was perfectly clear. But we have no NLF. It strikes me that one of the crazier aspects of the situation is that the so-called insurgency has no political voice. Exactly. They're just pure bombs in the marketplace, you know? That's their voice. So that's a downright weird situation. I'm just wondering what the play of forces tends towards. I mean, for instance, it's occurred to me to wonder if there's a civil war, someone can win a civil war. That's increasingly how some people are calculating inside Iraq. Shiites are starting to calculate. We've got the numbers. We can win this. And then we hear that uh, maybe it's going to be like the Congo with five or six outside powers kind of intervening in different subtle and unsubtle ways. And it's going to be a regional civil war. And I have no way to judge that. But I wonder what, what you think the outlook about what might a actually happen as opposed to what uh, Jim Baker is going to say. Well, I'm going to be cautious here. So can I use, I use a tired metaphor to, to, to try to sort of at least address the issue. I think of Iraq as a country that in 2003 had its Pandora box opened by external action. And we, those are the dreamers, the idealists, 5% there's like myself, had hoped that there would be an artful management of the furies that had been bottled up inside that Pandora's box. Well, it turns out, if you couple the American mistakes with Iraqi ones, and by the way, the Iraqi ones are bigger than the American ones. That's the whole other story we don't have time for. But quite frankly, I mean, it's right that you should criticize your government for its mistakes, but our mistakes, the others done by the new political elite created by the 2003, are in the end far more important to the failure that has taken place. That artful management, which was possible, theoretically possible, that was the 5% I was betting on, that wasn't there. So what we have now is those furies unleashed, battling it out with each other. And that's exactly what Iraq, a cauldron of seething furies which are warring against one another. There are no answers, no predictions. I cannot say, but I know how it will end up. But precisely because the leaderships that have emerged post-2003 are themselves beginning to realize that there is no management of this anymore, they are starting to hunker down for the big fight. And it will be very, very ugly. What are you saying these days about whether the United States should get out? Getting out simply means sticking a match to the tinderbox and just watching it go up. So do you stick the match now by getting out, or do you still hope that there might be other forms? I certainly think that this business of talking to Syria and Iran is just utter foolishness. But I totally understand the predicament that the U.S. is in. But it's very hard for me, uh, as an Iraqi, to say, pull out and let hundreds of thousands of people die. I want to ask you, Jonathan, this and ask you, Kanan, how would Hannah Arendt parse that particular question, whether the United States should, in this situation, pull out? Were she to adopt an American point of view, she would say pull out. Were she to adopt a larger human, let's say, universal sort of point of view, I don't know what she would say. I've said previously that I don't believe in ventriloquizing the dead. If I put on my Hannah Arendt thinking cap, first I'd say that unquestionably she would not think like an American. She would think like a universal human being. That much I think we can deduce yes. or even see written in the, not between the lines, but in the lines of what she has to say. We had a what to me was a wonderful discussion uh, with Elizabeth Young Brule and Ren and I 
one of the themes of it was certainly that positive political change does come exactly from the 5% chance that the miracle will occur, what she actually calls the miracle, the miracle of the new beginning. My own feeling from the start was that that miracle could not be brought in uh, from without or even precipitated from without by the American invasion. So I don't know what she would think, but my feeling is that we don't have anything to contribute there and that the horrible truth is that it's one disaster or another at one time or another, and I would prefer it to be earlier and, as I would hope, lesser than later and bigger. That would be my judgment, but I don't represent it as Hannah Arendt's view. This podcast was brought to you by the New York Institute for the Humanities and the Arthur L. Carter Journalism Institute. You can find us on Stitcher, iTunes, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. For more information, visit us at nyihumanities.org.